Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we look to your incarnation by viewing your human ancestor, Ruth, we ask you to bless our sermon that we may see your grace often comes to us through trial and tribulation. But you use such hardship not only for our own eternal well-being, but for the good of your bride, the invisible church of all believers. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to Matthew as recorded in chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. This is the word of our Lord. This, Ruth is the third non-Shem, non-Abraham descendant listed in our Savior's genealogy. We had Tamar, Rahab, and now Ruth. Ruth, while being a Canaanite, is actually a Moabite. And as we look at her faith, we see that how she comes to faith and how she comes to be an ancestor in our Lord's human lineage is an account of pure grace that she would not have known or been able to see as it unfolded before her eyes, but in hindsight, she'd be able to look back and see it. And so today, as we continue our theme, Lessons on the Coming of Our Lord from His Genealogy, we discuss the theme, He Comes Through Hardship. Now, the best place to find out about Ruth is in the book of Ruth. So let's start at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. During the days of the judges, a famine occurred in the land. So a man left Bethlehem in Judah to stay a while in the territory of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. They were from the clan of Ephrath, from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So she was left with her two sons. They then married Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. So, very first thing that happens is there's a famine in the land. Now, if you know the story of Ruth, or even the details, or just pay attention through this sermon, we're going to see famine that just coincidentally gets these, uh, this family, these four people, down into Moab where they coincidentally meet a woman who coincidentally becomes really a role model believer, a role model sister in Christ. No. God had predestined Ruth to be a believer. God was ruling, and he used that natural catastrophe, that famine, well, that's a reminder for you and I, because so often people scream, how can God let this tornado rip through this town? How can God, God allow this hurricane? How can God allow this cold weather, etc.? God did subject this world to decay. In every one of those is always a reminder for us that this world is dying. It's not where you want the basket you want to put your eggs in. But it also is a reminder for us that God uses those things to steer us in the directions where he intends for us to go so that we do inherit eternal life. I can tell you, as I've said in previous sermons, if it wasn't for illnesses that came upon me that were beyond my control, natural illnesses, I would not be the person standing in front of this or behind this pulpit for you today. So as we look at lessons in the coming of our Lord from his genealogy, we see he comes through hardships and he uses natural catastrophes. Now, 
Did you catch what had happened in verse 3? But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, so she was left with her two sons. We're going to see that Ruth is clearly a believer, so I would never accuse, and Orpah, her sister-in-law, seems to at least have some kind of faith, so I would not accuse them of being, for example, like uh, Judah, who seemed to be more interested in looks than in somebody who might become a hindrance or an obstacle to his faith in the Lord. Same thing with his uncle Esau, who was just didn't seem to care about the coming Savior at all. However, perhaps it may be that Elimelech, knowing of his ancestor Judah, might have told his boys, uh-uh, you're not marrying these Canaanite women. I'm not saying that it was good that Elimelech died so that his boys could get married, but there's a potential there that the Lord had more than one plan. Either way, Elimelech went to heaven, so he was perfectly happy how everything turned out. So right, we can already see whether the Lord's at work through the pain of death. Then we're told in verse 5, but Naomi's sons, Mahalan and Kilian, also died. So the woman was left with her two, without her two children and without her husband. Let's not trivialize this. This woman's in some emotional pain because of death. Now, let's also admit that the wages of sin is death. If Adam and Eve had not fallen into sin, no one would die. And it's only by faith in our Lord that we are given the victory that defeats that grave. Only children of God can rejoice and say when they end up in heaven, as I just said about Elimelech and we save his two sons, they were perfectly happy how everything turned out. So we're told in verse 6 that Naomi set out with her daughters-in-law to return from the territory of Moab because while she was in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had graciously visited his people by providing them with food. So she left the place where she had been and her two daughters-in-law left with her. They set out on the road to return to the land of Judah. Now again, because both of her daughter-in-laws are going with her, neither one of them is going to abandon her. I do think that both of them are believers. Ruth seems to have a much, it's easy to argue Ruth had a much stronger faith. So we get to verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Both of you return to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find security in the house of a husband. Then she kissed them and they wept loudly. But they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Then Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Am I going to give birth to any more sons who could become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to be married to another husband. Suppose I say, I have hope, and I will be married to another husband tonight, and I will even give birth to sons. Would you wait for them until they grow up? On the basis of that hope, would you give up the chance to marry another husband? No, my daughters, it's much more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has reached out against me. A couple of things we want to cover here. Number one, we've covered in that part of the world at that time, and it was commanded of the Israelites because of the land that was their inheritance, that if a son died and he didn't have any children and he was married, then his brother was to marry his wife and the child produced from that union. That'd be her retirement account, and he would get the son's inheritance, his allotment or his brother's allotment of the land that he was supposed to inherit. And so there's a lot going on here. We're going to find out as we go on. She's going to overlook the fact that, well, there's a kinsman redeemer, another relative who can do this, and the child will be adopted and considered her grandchild. Now, the other thing is that she says, because the hand of the Lord has reached out against me. Naomi's a believer. 
She has a weakness of faith here. She knows that God works behind all things, but here she makes it sound like the hand of the Lord isn't working for her. It's working against her. I love the words that Martin Luther said in his commentary on the Psalms, not trivializing hardships in life at all. He says, it often seems like God hates us. It's not the case. And that's what Naomi has logically concluded. First a famine, then uh, all of my men are struck dead. I am in a world of hurt. This is it. The hand of the Lord's against me. You girls get away from me. It's almost like I'm cursed, right? But again, as we'll see at the end, she will end up rejoicing. She needs to be patient. And it's a reminder for us, even when suffering with the hardship of the death of someone we love who we're very close to, hang in there. God has a plan. So we're told in verse 14, They once again wept loudly, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth would not let her go. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her gods. Go back, follow your sister-in-law. How sad. Actually, Naomi has flopped on Orpah here. She should have encouraged her to come because notice how she said, and to her gods. Left alone, she's not. She's going to have quite a battle to stay faithful to the true God. And so it seems like her faith probably is a little bit more nominal. Now, in last week's, or in the last sermon that we had, when we looked at uh, the previous ancestor Rahab, ancestress Rahab, we saw quite a confession of faith. And Ruth also has a confession of faith, as her mother-in-law is telling her, there's no way you're going to get married again. I can't support you. Go back. Go back to your own family. In verse 16, she said, we're told, but Ruth said, do not urge me to abandon you or to turn back from following you because wherever you go, I will go and wherever you make your home, I will make my home. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Now, that sentence, your people will be my people and your God will be my God, there's not an equitive verb in the Hebrew language that's listed there. Uh, They assume the tense of the others, the imperfect tense, which isn't always future. And that's the point I want to make. Literally, the Hebrew language here says, your people, my people, your God, my God. This is like handcuffs. And really, Ruth isn't saying sometime in the future, your people are going to be my people. And sometime in the future, I'll come to faith in your God. What she says in the original Hebrew words is, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Her and Naomi are already sisters in the coming Lord, and she's not going to abandon her. She's going to stay worshiping the true God. This is what makes Ruth such a faithful daughter-in-law. And so in spite of that death, Naomi has gained quite a sister in Christ. And so in verse 17, she says, Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely and double it, if anything but death separates me from you. So while death has separated Naomi from her husband and sons, she now has a daughter-in-law that's saying, I'm going to stick to you until one of us dies. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Then the two of them traveled until they arrived at Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the the whole town became excited over them. The women said, is this Naomi? But she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made me very bitter. Mara from the Hebrew word for bitterness. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why should you call me Naomi? For the Lord has has testified against me and the Almighty has treated me badly. 
Once again, because of all of her death, she sees God's hand, but she doesn't see God's hand at work for her. She's not going to see that until she holds her grandchild in her arms. At this point, she thinks God hates her and is working against her. That is a weak faith because death has put her in that position. But again, we know that the coming Savior is going to come through this daughter-in-law of hers, Ruth. So it's a reminder for us that he comes through hardships. He uses natural catastrophes and he uses the pain of death. He's redeemed you and I from death. It's why we rejoice in the Savior who conquered the grave for us and has given us eternal life. Just as he had taken that Moabitess and, and had given her eternal life because of that hardship that brought Naomi's family down into that part of Moab. Now, we find Naomi and uh, Ruth are in economic hardship. And we have to recognize Modern day welfare systems often politically are designed to keep people on that welfare system. And they often just become a handout that destroy people's pride. The Apostle Paul was not teaching anything new in the New Testament when he was talking about uh, the New Testament church helping widows and, and people who are in, in hardships. And usually it was they were taking care of their own because they had been cast out of the synagogue. And the Apostle Paul paraphrases basically what is taught in the Old Testament when he says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. So the Old Testament welfare system that God gave them on Mount Sinai really wasn't welfare. When people went out to glean that harvest their fields, it, they weren't to go back over it a second time to get anything that they missed. This was the days before combines and windrowers and stuff, so it was done by hand. And if they dropped anything, they were to leave it. The people who were destitute, the people who were hard up and they, you know, and they needed that, that help, they were to go and get it themselves. And so they would have to pluck that. So it wasn't just a handout for them. And we find now they're back in Bethlehem and Naomi and Ruth. Uh, they're going to have to, somebody's got to harvest some of the fields so that they will have enough bread to make it through the winter. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a wealthy, generous man from the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, I'm going to go out to the fields so that I can glean ears of grain wherever I may find favor in the eyes of the owner. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth went out and gleaned in the grain fields after the reapers. It happened that she was in the field that belonged to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, in the Bible, things don't just happen. There's not just coincidences. And it's fun, again, the way the Hebrew language says that. It says, she encountered a happening. This is a biblical way of saying she caught a break in a way that was beyond human control. There happens to be a kinsman redeemer. This, that, and what that means is he would take the place of uh, the dead brothers or uh, the dead father. And in fact... He would redeem the land. If your family was destitute and you had somebody who was a kinsman redeemer, they would buy the land. And on the year of Jubilee, it would come back to you. So they were actually just renting it. So here we have Boaz. And she ends up in, in it's no coincidence, God has ruled over time in history in the field of a man who's going to be very generous to her. Uh, by the way, as we continue on, in case your mind thinks that way, we're never told that Ruth was beautiful, nor are we told that she fell out of the ugly tree. She just seems to be an average looking Moabite woman. At just that time, Boaz happened to come out from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they said to him, the Lord bless you. Boaz already shows us that he's a brother in the coming Savior. Then Boaz asked his servants who was in charge of the reaper, reapers, whose young woman is this? 
The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. All right, now a prejudiced person would get her off my land, right? She's not entitled to this. She's not an Israelite. She has become an Israelite by faith. She said, please let me follow the reapers and glean and gather stalks into sheaves. So she came and has been working from early morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, I'm going to stop right there. The term he uses for and the fact that he calls her a young lady gives us the impression that Boaz is a much older man. We know the coming savior is going to be from the union of Boaz and Ruth. He seems to be more closer to Naomi's age than Ruth's age. We're never told what happened there, but we're never told that he was married before or had other children. There'd been some kind of a hardship in Boaz's life, but Boaz remains a faithful child of God. So he says, do not go off and glean in some other field. In fact, do not leave this one at all. Just stick close to my young women here. Keep your eyes on the field where the men are reaping so that you can follow my women. I have commanded the young men not to touch you. When you are thirsty, you may go to the jars and drink from whatever the young men draw out. An economic hardship after everything else, is used to send Ruth to no coincidence at all, but what would seem like a coincidence to the right field of a man who has a very loving heart. He's a true Israelite, trusting in the coming Savior, knowing his mercy and forgiveness, and showing that mercy not only to a Moabite, which would be a Canaanite, also to his relative who has lost all of her family. And even the women that, that also glean the fields, they take, treat good care of her. The Lord comes through economic hardship. And it's something for you and I to remember as well. When our 401ks disappear during economic times or take quite a hit or when we're afraid of losing our jobs and stuff, sometimes we might battle through some economic hardship. But God will see to it unless he's calling us to heaven that we don't starve to death. And God will have a plan through that as well as we keep our eyes focused on our Savior who has come. So in... What ends up happening is Boaz even tells his men, when you're gleaning, grab a handful of the stuff and leave it for, drop it on the ground. And so she gets very well protected. And when she goes back, she reports all of this to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law asks her a little few more questions. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 21, then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stick close to my workers until they finished all of the harvest on the land that belongs to me. Then Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you can go out with, it, with his young women so that you will not be molested by men in some other field. So Ruth cl stuck close to Boaz's young women and gleaned until the completion of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Naomi thought the world was, that the Lord was against her. We're going to get here to, to even more in a minute. The Lord had provided Ruth for her. And he had provided faith in Ruth. This was all a plan. And then for the two of them, he had provided Boaz, who we're not told he was ugly. We're not told that he was handsome. But he seems to be older and he seems to definitely be single and have no wife or children of his own. And yet his actions don't originally seem to be that of flirtation at all. It just seems to be out of a kind heart. But Naomi recognizes, yes, you stay there because you're safe here. And Ruth, if you think about it, she's a hard worker. Even the, the field hand had commented she only stopped to rest for a while. And this is a part of the world where during the heat of the day, people stop and rest because it gets warm. Uh, how amazing is that? 
who, we, today we, we can be like Judah or like his uncle and, and, and turn around and be concerned more with, with choosing our marital partners out of what's attractive, physically attractive. But, but these two end up together because, you know, as good spouses, because they look out for each other. They understand commitment. They both are, are dedicated people. And, and Ruth is definitely a hard worker. But isn't it interesting how through all of that, the Lord is using Ruth as Naomi's sister in the coming Lord. Naomi gives Ruth very good advice because she's her sister in the coming Lord, also her daughter-in-law. And Boaz, as their brother in the coming Lord, looks out for them. And even the women that she's with and Boaz's workers look out for her because Boaz is told to because they're her brothers and sisters in the coming Lord. So he comes through hardship. But when you're in hardship, recognize he uses brothers and sisters. Now, as a side note, I've seen a few times where brothers and sisters in Christ take care of someone in a hardship and that person becomes entitled. They become demanding. They start acting for uh, somewhat like a spoiled brat. If you find yourself in that position, don't be that way. Be thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them as they have helped you. Finally, at, in Ruth chapter 4, the last chapter, verse 13, the, the union has taken place and a child is born and we're told, Then Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and care for you in your old age because your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to them. She is better than seven sons. I, I just want to stop. Let that sink in. The community of Bethlehem who had been told by Naomi, no, call me bitterness, call me Mara, are telling her, you know what? It's, it's sad that you lost your husband and sons, but what the Lord gave you, your sister in the coming Lord, she's better than seven sons. She has really remained faithful to you. And the child that was born to Boaz and Ruth would be considered Naomi's grandson. He would get the inheritance of, of Elimelech and, and, and her two sons. And so we're told, then Naomi took the boy and put him in her lap, and she became his caregiver. The neighboring women named him, saying, A son is born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow, something big's going on here. When it's all said and done, Naomi, who originally said, Call me bitterness, and saying, The Lord's hand has been against me, she's able to see the blessing. Wow, I've got this wonderful grandson, and she may have lived. All right, I've got this wonderful child. She may have lived to see David become king. She may not have. But the wonderful blessing in all that is when it was all said and done, she was able to look back and say, okay, the Lord's hand was not working against me. It was working for me. But it would be a long time before she would be able to see all of that. And even hear her sisters, her Israelite uh, fellow Israelites telling her, wow, what the Lord provided for you was better than seven sons. So he enables us to see his blessings. When hardships come upon you, recognize that. Stay with it. Trust in the Lord. Sometimes it may be a while, but eventually you usually are able to look back and go, ah, that's what the Lord had in mind. As I have served people who had survived the dirty 30s between the stock market crash, the grasshopper plagues and the dust bowls. It was interesting to me how so many of them could see the, the, hand, the, the Lord's hand saying, we, we, never, we didn't have plenty, but we always had enough. And they came to enjoy that pair of socks they got for Christmas and how close their family were. And they were able to see how they clung to the Lord through such hardship, just as Ruth did. And she became an ancestress in our Lord, showing that salvation is also for us Gentiles. 
So today, we, as we look at lessons in the coming of our Lord through his genealogy, we see he comes through hardship. He uses natural catastrophes. He uses the pain of death. He uses economic hardship. He uses our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he then enables us to see his blessings. We may not see them fully in this life. We will understand them in the next life. But we often are able to look back and say, ah, here's where the Lord was working. Praise be to our coming Savior who has redeemed us from death and given us those blessings. Amen. Now may the God of all grace fill you with complete hope, peace, joy, and love so that you overflow with hope, peace, joy, and love by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.